0: Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Hello, everyone. This is Bill Peacock, and welcome to episode 63 of the Liberty Cafe. It's a blessing to have you here with me, listening in, and it's a blessing being able to talk to you And as we all fight against oppression that we see in our culture, you know, oppression, you know, we we think about oppression coming to us from the the government, and and that's certainly the case, and we we see that more and more these days, unfortunately. But oppression really comes first and foremost from our hearts as we are fallen creatures and we've turned away from God and we are oppressed in in the, the depths of our sin. And the only way we get freedom from that truly is through Jesus Christ. I, I worked in the free market think tank business for 15 years, great organization, great group of people there nationally on this issue, and, and it's great. But the one thing that that whole movement is missing, the, the you might call the freedom movement in the United States, is you, we're not going to solve the problem of oppression unless we do it through the Word of God and Jesus Christ, right? And, and so we really need to start bringing together, you know, public policy and the Bible in one place and the gospel in one place. And, and and as we talk to people about property rights or markets or anything else, we need to talk to them about Jesus and God and how God made the world to work and explain that to them through the use of scriptures as well as economics and, and you know, political science and those kinds of things. And so that's why I'm really grateful to be, uh, have the, the Liberty Cafe sponsored by Texas Scorecard because they're giving me an opportunity to do that and talk about public policy and Jesus Christ in the same place, and they do that in, in their work as well. So thanks to Texas Scorecard for our sponsors. Please go over to texasscorecard.com and check in with them and see what is being done in the fight for liberty here in Texas. All right, so on episode 63 today, we're going to talk about a real barn burner crowd pleaser kind of thing. We're going to talk about enumerated powers. So, all right, so you you may not have been reading much about enumerated powers in the the press these days because kind of one reason you haven't read much about it is because the the question's kind of settled, right, Um, and, you know, well, let me get to the point, right, and let me kind of explain what it is and we'll see why the question's settled and then we'll talk a little bit about, you know, maybe how we can get that unsettled just a little bit, get to it. So if you think about it, you go back and look at it, the United States Constitution is a document of enumerated powers. Right? Only the powers that are granted to the federal government, either the legislative branch, that's Article One of the Constitution, The executive branch in Article 2 or the legislative branch, Article 3, only those powers given to them specifically are the powers that they could have. So that's enumerated powers. And then that concept of enumerated powers is really captured in the Tenth Amendment. And let me just uh, dig through my notes here for you and then uh, read what the Tenth Amendment here says. Uh, the Tenth Amendment actually says the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people, right? So that, that's a pretty simple concept. If the government uh, – Congress has given the power to um, raise an army, right? Well, they get to raise an army, but they don't get to – tell you whether you can grow wheat in your backyard. At least that's the idea behind enumerated powers. Right? Now, it, it, it gets a little fuzzy, not, not too fuzzy, but a little fuzzy because there's also this concept of implied powers in the Constitution. So if the federal government, for instance, Congress has given the power to raise an army, well then it's implied then that they can go out and buy guns and they can go out and buy uniforms, and they can go out and buy food for the army, those kinds of things. So nowhere in the Constitution does it say they can buy guns and food and clothing for the army, but that's an implied power. But then we run across this, this little problem in the, uh, the, the Constitution called um, the Necessary and Proper Clause. And that, this is in Article 1. It's in the 8th uh, the section of Article 1 and basically what you have starting out is there are seven sections in Article 1 that basically you know, tell Congress what it can do. It's enumerated powers. It lists all these different things that, that they can do. And then it gets to this eighth section which is basically says that – well, it doesn't basically say it. It absolutely says it because I'm going to read it to you right here. Uh, um, well, I thought I was going to read it to you right here, but I can't find it. So basically, what it says that the um, the federal government can has the Congress has the the power that is necessary and proper to carry out the the enumerated powers that it has been given, right? And, and so, really, what that would mean is that if it's neces, it has implied powers, right? That we've already talked about. If it's necessary for Congress to buy guns and buy clothing and buy food for the army in order to carry out its enumerated power of raising an army, then it can do that, right? And rather than just leave that concept implied in there, it it puts in the necessary and proper clause. But it's kind of a problem with the necessary and proper clause because What's necessary? What's proper? That's subject to a lot of debate. And if you go back to the um, the Constitutional Convention, there was a lot of debate about that necessary and proper clause, whether or not it was appropriate or not. And uh, and then after the the Constitutional Convention, you you, you may have heard of the Federalist Papers, you know, and, uh, Madison and um, Hamilton and I think maybe John Jay, I'm not sure, wrote these long papers on – different papers on um, – called the Federalist Papers in order to push for the adoption of the federal constitution, what we, we have today is our constitution. But there were also the anti-federalist papers and these were people who were very concerned about the the amount of power that the federal constitution would give to the federal government. They They thought that this was – A bad idea, and so Brutus was one of the people who wrote. I I can't remember what his real name was. You know, for instance, on the Federalist Papers, uh, Madison wrote as Publius. Here we have somebody writing an anti-Federalist paper uh, under the name of Brutus. And let me just read this. It's a little long, but let me. I think it's worth reading. Brutus writes, "This government is to possess, possess absolute and uncontrollable power." legislative, executive, and judicial, with respect to every object to which it extends. For by the last clause of Section 8, Article 1, it is declared that the Congress shall have the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper. So there you go, there's a necessary and proper clause. He goes on, how far the clause in the 8th section of the first article may operate to do away all idea of a confederated states, because you recall we had sort of independent, separate confederated states before the Constitution was adopted. So let me go back to that. May operate to do away all idea of confederated states and to in an effect an entire consolidation of the whole into one general go- government. It is impossible to say. The powers given by this article again, the the necessary and proper clause, are very general and comprehensive, and it may receive a construction to justify the passing of almost any law, a power to make all laws, which shall be necessary and proper for carrying an execution. All powers vested by the Constitution of the government of the United States, or any department or officer thereof, is a power very comprehensive and definite, and may, for aught I know, be exercised in such a manner as to abolish the state legislators, legislatures. So, uh, you know, I I think looking back today, we might be, think that Brutus was a visionary because we have seen the federal government expand time and time and time and time again over the last 200 plus years to the point where, yes, states still get to do some stuff, but the, the federal government has basically control over almost everything. So – but let's go back and look about this and, and see how the Necessary and Proper Clause kind of got its start right? because there are some debates about all this. We're not going to go all the way down uh, to the um, – to modern day, but but let's go back and start. So the the, the first place we see, saw a debate over the Necessary and Proper Clause was with the um, – like I said, in the, the – um, Constitutional Convention. And particularly, they, they were debating whether or not this was an appropriate thing to do. And one of the specific instances that had to do with the powers of, of Congress in the Constitutional Convention was whether they should give Congress the power to charter institutions, private, semi-private, semi-quasi-private, quasi-public institutions like a national bank. And they debated that extensively and decided not to give Congress the power to charter a national bank. Well, that didn't stop the people who wanted a national bank because almost as soon as we got the federal government, we had the elections, George Washington became president. And, of course, he put in his cabinet—two of the people he put in there were were Alexander Hamilton— and Thomas Jefferson. And Hamilton wanted a national bank. And so he and his Federalist buddies got Congress to pass uh, the act chartering the first national bank of the United States. And then it came to Washington to make the decision whether to sign that or not. And there was a big debate in the Washington administration. Hamilton was pushing for the national bank, and Jefferson. Against the national bank, you recall Jefferson was was not a Federalist. He he was more of um, you know maybe he wasn't always in the all the way in the anti Federalist, but he was not a big centralized government kind of person. He he really was on the smaller side of um, uh, of government and wanted more power to the states. And he was fighting against it. Well, within the Washington administration, Hamilton won and. Washington signed the first national bank into existence. Interestingly enough, uh, James Madison, who was a Federalist, was against it. He was over in Congress at the time. He had voted against it and was arguing against it, but none of that prevailed. Washington signed it, and we had the first national bank of the United States. The claim being we needed a national bank to carry out Congress's power to you know, collect debts and, and coin money and pay bills and spend money, all those kind of things. So after a period of time, uh, we get to the Madison administration, right? So what is there? There's uh, Washington, and then Jefferson, and then Adams, and then I think Madison's next, right? And so uh, we, we get to the Madison administration, and the first national bank in the United States has expired. And so Congress passes another bill called the um, to charter the second national bank of the United States. So that passes, it goes into law. Madison signs it. He says he still doesn't think it's right, but the 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 politics have changed. He said, and so he was going to sign it anyway. I I think personally, that's an abdication of power. If you you take an oath to uphold the Constitution and you don't think something's constitutional, you shouldn't sign the bill. But uh, be that as may, that's what happened. And then, so we get the Second Bank of the United States, and then Maryland comes along and lays a tax on the Second Bank of the United States. And so um, this case goes to the Supreme Court about whether states can lay a tax on a federally chartered entity. So that rises up to the level of the Supreme Court. But before the Supreme Court can decide whether or not the state can tax the, the second national bank, they need to decide whether the second national bank is constitutional or not. So the Supreme Court looks at this and they base their opinion on the necessary and proper clause. And you know, I'm not going to go through all the legal rigmarole and things like that, but essentially, at this point in time, what and, and this was McCulloch versus Maryland. Very famous case uh, when it's one of those you know top you know one hundred Supreme Court cases you really ought to know about if you're going to learn about you know constitutional law. McCulloch versus Maryland that's one of the one of the early ones, and in McCulloch versus Maryland, the U.S. Supreme Court the sort, Let me try that again. The U.S. Supreme Court decides that yes, the Second National Bank of the United States is constitutional because necessary really means convenient. So isn't that what we see all the time in court rulings today? And we thought that kind of stuff was just, you know, modern, you know, in in our day and age where the Supreme Court looks at something, for instance, you know, the right to abortion and finds the right to abortion somewhere in the pro or or uh, you know shadows of the constitution or in the right to liberty right they just kind of make this stuff up but it's not modern it's been going on for a long time and essentially again in mcculloch versus maryland the supreme court decided that necessary meant convenient so it's if it's merely convenient for the united states to carry out its powers to to coin money and to pay debts and to collect revenues and those kind of things then they can charter an institution like a national bank. And so that's where we started seeing the necessary and proper clause going south and going south really quick and really early. A few years later, in another case, we also see the very same kind of ruling going on in Prigg versus Pennsylvania. Now this was a a court case talking about the Fugitive Slave Act and the Fugitive Slave Clause. If we go back to the Constitution, the fugitive slave clause was put in there, and and I think maybe in the fourth article, I'm not sure. But basically, what it said was that if a slave escapes from a slave state into a free state, and you got to remember, uh, while I think all the sl- states of the South were slave states, there were slave states in the North too. So it wasn't exactly a s- North South sort of divide here. But anyway, if a if a s- Slave escapes from a slave state to a free state, the fr- free state has to return the slave state right but but it just says that the 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 there was no enforcement mechanism in the Constitution for that, and it, there was I think done for a reason because the the southern states, the slave states anyway, wouldn't have gone along with something like that. So it just said that. Well, what happened over time was that the the some of the free states weren't returning the slaves to slave states. Now, we can look at that and think that's a really good thing, and we we could all agree with that. It was a right thing for those free states to be doing. But Congress decided to pass the Fugitive Slave Act, which gave Congress some enforcement ability to force these free states to send the slaves back. And so the that became the new fight over the necessary and proper clause because nowhere in the Constitution did it give Congress the ability to do that. And so not only was this uh, – this even wasn't even an enumerated power of Congress. This was just a power uh, statement in the Constitution. But nonetheless, in Prigg versus Pennsylvania, again, we see this expansive reading of the necessary and proper clause and, and that it was n- – Necessary or convenient for Congress to have this to enable to enforce the Fugitive Slave Clause. So those are two really early readings of the Fugitive Slave Clause that, that came to pass. And we see it also a lot when it came later on in like uh, the, uh, the days of um, FDR, right? FDR and all the things that he passed and were trying to push through the Supreme Court. Uh, They had to revisit this Necessary and Proper Clause because it had been narrowed down quite a bit by the court after the Civil War and things like that. But it started to come back up here. And again, we see an expansive reading during the New Deal era of the Necessary and Proper Clause, and and it hasn't gone away since. So basically, you you, you put the Necessary and Proper Clause and you put the Commerce Clause and some of the other things – along with the separation of powers issues in there. And what we have today is a very expanded national government that totally has blown up what was called federalism or particularly dual federalism at the founding of our nation. And so we've really radically undermined that. And I think we've really radically undermined... Our freedoms and liberty because of that. And so what's the solution here? Well, the, the solution, I think, is for state legislators, governors, mayors, those types of people, what, what was known in biblical literature, particularly during the Protestant Reformation, as lesser magistrates, to stand up to the magistrates above them, right? So th- this happened during the, um, the Protestant Reformation where— a lot of lesser magistrates in Europe, princes and things like that, were standing up to the kings and emperors above them, protecting their Protestant citizens from being burned at the stake by the Catholic Church and the Catholic emperors and kings and those kind of things. And, you know, John Calvin and Martin Luther and and um, a lot of others, Samuel Rutherford, a lot of others like them, you know, dug through the Bible and found out that, you know, Not only is it okay, according to the Bible, to disobey the government when they tell you to do things wrong, but lesser magistrates have a duty to disobey magistrates above them when they are told to to harm their constituents below them or when they need to protect their constituents below them, right? So, So that's what we need, is we need some people in Texas and in the other states to have some guts and to look at the Bible and to stand up and fight against the tyranny that we see coming at us from the federal government. So there's something else to pray for as we go through this, um, this fight that we're seeing in the United States and in Texas today about tyranny, and, um, and just pray for how God, that God will resolve this in a way that is glorifying to him and brings freedom and liberty to his people. All right. Well, thank you again for being with me today on episode 63 of Liberty Cafe. And thank once again to our sponsors, Texas Scorecard. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe with Bill Peacock. This show is produced by Texas Scorecard. You can learn more about this show and find other shows at texasscorecard.com. Be sure you subscribe and rate this show on whatever platform you listen on. See you next time.